following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> you can open there with me. We're going to start a new series today. And let me just explain uh, why we're doing this and what we're doing uh, just for a moment here. So back in 2014, there's a phrase that now has become um, something that is utilized regularly in our world. And it's a phrase you'll, re- you'll notice and you'll understand. It started in 2014 and it's the phrase cancel culture. Some of you might know of that. You've heard of that. And basically the idea behind cancel culture is if um, someone posts something, says something, writes something, uh, communicates something in a way <clears throat> that is not helpful or isn't agreed upon by either an individual, by a group of people, then we can ignore them. We can remove them from whatever stratosphere that they're communicating to. And then we can as well just ridicule them altogether by putting them out of our sight. Um, what's intriguing is that started in 2014 with the hashtag MeToo movement. Some of you probably remember that. It was a moment in our culture when, um, when rightfully so, victims of sexual abuse begin to come out and say, hey, we've got, we've been, we were abused when we were younger. Um, but what began to um, resolve and come out of this movement was the fact that this cancel culture idea that if you disagreed with someone or something, um, you were at, you were potentially at odds with the rest of the culture and you would be removed or pushed to the circumference. What's intriguing is in 2016, there began to be a noticeable shift even further in our culture in a, in a really hard election year. Um, I, I know of some of you and I know of friends that I have that in that 2016 election year, when it became known to some family members who you voted for, they literally remo- removed you from their, their relationships. They decided to cancel you out of their world because they didn't like where you particularly stood on certain things. And the cancel culture became more to the forefront in 2016. It was really an interesting time. that You, you begin to then read of certain things or you posted something on a particular social media feed in particular it might be removed or had a little addendum added to it. And you had all those type of things happening. What was intriguing about cancel culture was not just that it was happening in the social media spheres. It was actually happening in every world, every part of our relationships. Um, you know, we can be uh, people on one side of the tracks of the other and be upset about cancel culture. But yet, um, what I would ask you to observe about your own life potentially is um, as 2016 and the election begin to unfold, you begin to notice that we begin to remove people from our lives who disagreed with us. Uh, we begin to do a different form of cancel culture uh, as well. But what's intriguing is when 2020 hit, the fruit of cancel culture really came on the scene. Um, and it was it really became very evident. The COVID-19 pandemic hit the shores and people from, and you can imagine, had every different opinion you, you could imagine, right? From, from the angles that this is the most horrific pandemic to ever hit the, you know, the world, to this is a conspiracy theory by our governments to take control, uh, went so far even into the vaccines <clears throat> that, you know, one side would say the vaccine is needed for everything. The other side would say the vaccine is the mark of the beast. 
I mean, you've got every angle of opinions that you can potentially imagine. But what began to happen that I found intriguing in 2020 as the fruit of cancel culture was we begin to lock ourselves in these opinionated silos where only those who agreed with our opinion would be allowed in. And so then if we stepped outside of our opinionated silos, we looked at, we looked across the room at those who were stepping outside of their opinionated silo. And if they didn't agree with us, there was vitriol and violence and aggression and anger and isolation and removal of relationships. Now, what's intriguing about that is the fruit of that is that's not the fruit of democracy. It's not the fruit of how Christian people should be interacting with one another. Because in reality, what should be happening, what happened in my lifetime growing up as a young man, was I was taught early on how important it is to sit down with people who disagreed with my positions so I could hear them, talk to them, and treat them as a fellow image bearer. And then hopefully at one point truth would win out. But if if they still disagreed on something, we walked away, shook hands, hugged, and went back home. Those days are virtually over. And they're over because we have adopted a a lifestyle that basically says we'd rather choose isolation, we'd rather choose uh, removal of relationships than go through the challenge to be able to speak the truth with one another. And what's crazy is then the the 2020 election came and the silos got bigger and the, the divide between us became wider. Lines were drawn like never before. Families could not literally, you could not have a conversation over politics with somebody you disagreed with for fear of what might happen out of that relationship. And you certainly couldn't talk about your opinions on the COVID-19 pandemic with somebody because if you did, you're, you're risking losing a friend. And all the while, this chasm just continues to get bigger and wider. People couldn't talk openly with family members and friends over very personal issues, like questions that you might have about medical issues. You couldn't talk about those things to do research with people to hear an opinion you disagreed with for fear that they might cancel you out of their world for looking weird, for even asking the question. We couldn't discuss our our disagreements about politics without a fight. And people begin to not speak honestly with one another and literally ignoring one another, choosing separation rather than respectful discussion became the norm. Now, we look at that outside the world and we go, that's just crazy. I mean, we see that everywhere. I mean, I I don't know about you, I can't hardly flip on the nightly news without hearing that stuff going on all the time. Um, It's like an addictive drug that if you don't disconnect yourself from it, you think it's normal. But then I've watched the same thing happen in the church. Rather than speaking the truth to one another in love, we now shy away from speaking the truth or from the truth altogether. Rather than helping brothers and sisters see an area of growth in their life that would help them and benefit them and their families, we keep our mouths shut. If someone is speaking nonsense or error or at worst they're speaking heresy, rather than correcting it, we just walk away now. Because cancel culture has created in us this fear we don't ever want to be shut out and we don't want to create conflict. And it's created frayed relationships in the church. And I will say this, not ours per se. Um, our, our, our issue in our church is a little more subtle. The issue in our church is we have such a high premium on sound doctrine and preaching God's word and being concise and precise with God's word. And we want... We, we, we believe and respect in biblical relationships, and we know, because you've heard me say this over and over again, <clears throat> we're always one Sunday away from a church split, that we are, 
We're constantly protecting ourselves from being divisive or being in a conflict that our fears are if we say something to someone about a sin we see in their life or an issue that needs to be corrected or an untruth that's being spoken, we could be at risk of dividing and conflicting in the church. And so what ends up happening is we don't even know when to lovingly confront, when to speak up, and our default is we don't. Now, what that breeds over the long haul, whether or not you believe this or not, it actually breeds bitterness. It brings, it breeds unforgiveness and it's an obstacle to true unity. And what it eventually does, it actually brings division. That's what it does. And by God's grace in the life of our church for 18 years, we have enjoyed a wonderful direction of God. In the last 10 years in particular, we have enjoyed an incredible unity among us that has been remarkably wonderful. It has been so unique. It's been a uh, it feels like at times on a Sunday morning or any gathering I get with uh, brothers or sisters in our church, it feels like a taste of heaven. There's just this unity and joy that we can have open discussions and talk about hard things with one another and walk away without being offended, knowing that you might agree on something that I don't agree with, but that's really cool because Jesus is king of our hearts. And that unity and joy is something that's really precious that the Apostle Paul told us we should maintain, we should fight for, we should... We should battle for. And so, so it's that understanding that I want us to start a new series. It's the understanding of division without and the potential for division within that I want us to do a series for the next six weeks. <clears throat> We're calling it Redemptive Relationships. And in this series, it's, we've got three goals in mind that we want to target. And the first one is we want to we find out from God, from God's Word, how are we, what did God design us as people? How did he design us to live in relationships? What does it look like at the beginning when God made us? And what does that design look like? We want to also see how do we maintain peaceful relationships because there will be conflict, right? If you think that coming to church here and enjoying all the blissful stuff that we get to do here is an antidote to ever having conflict in your life or in the church, you are messed up in the head because, <laughs> because number one, I'm here and I, I can create conflict. Believe me, I can do it in a moment. You could do it as well. It's within us. And there's going to be conflict. So the question would be, how do we maintain peaceful unity in the midst of conflict when there's going to be conflict? But most importantly, here's what I want us to see. I, I want us to see the power of Christ and the freedom in Christ that makes these genuine relationships possible. And there's a reason for that. As we're going to see today, we have a world that is so radically divided. And, and what we do in the church is we get, our, we get, up, we get our, our, our emotions up about it. Man, I cannot believe the world is so divided. But I don't, have you read your Bible lately? Because Genesis 3 will tell you that's the byproduct of sin. Instead, what should be happening in the church is us working toward redemptive relationships, reconciled relationships, relationships that are peace with one another in Christ to such a degree that we can talk about really hard issues that we disagree over and walk away more informed, better people, and still loving one another, and then going outside into a divided world and showing them the power of Christ at work in us. That, that's what should be happening in the church. By God's grace, it's been happening here. But you guys know me well enough, and I think you know our elder board well enough, that we are always on preemptive strikes. I'm always thinking, 
not what's the solution, but better yet, how do we guard against this so when it does happen, we got the tools. We got the tools to handle it. So this morning we're going to start with looking at relationships before the fall. And by that, what I mean is, how did God create us as humans? And what are, what does, what is he, how did he want us to live in relationships before sin entered the world? Right? We're going to have to put on our thinking caps because all we know is sin entering the world, right? And what happens with, with our relationships because of sin. And we want to see <clears throat> really how did God design us as humans to relate with one another and more, and even more narrow, relate with one another in Christ, right? If you're new with us, you got an outline and on the outline, there's a big idea. Here's the big idea that we're going to look at this morning. We were created in the image of God to reveal God and our relationships are to be God centered. We were created in the image of God to reveal God and our relationships are to be God-centered. That's, that's what we want to do this morning. Okay? That, now, this is, again, this is just one step in a six-part series, right? There's going to be a lot of things where you go, well, you didn't answer this question. This question. Yeah, that's right. We're going to keep moving forward over the next few weeks. This is also one of those trailers to say, come back next week. Or if you're not here, get the video or whatever it is that you listen to. Okay? So let's stand together. <clears throat> We're going to read Genesis 1, <clears throat> 26 through 31 together. Genesis 1. 26. This is the reading of God's word. If you're new here, we stand because this is God's holy and inspired word that we as God's people see as authoritative. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you, would you open our eyes to see the truth of Christ? And the power of what he restored us to. And would you help us today? We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now let's start with uh, point number one there in your outline, which is created for God to reveal God. If you got your Bibles out and you scroll through Genesis chapter 1, you can't help but see... Our amazing God creating everything, stars, moon, sun, plants, animals, seas, lakes, mountains, fish, you name it, they all derive their beginning from God who is the author of all of life. And five places in the Genesis account, we read that God saw it and he said it was very good, meaning that God was happy with what he created because it revealed 
His invisible character, his, his invisible power on display that God, out of one word, could create everything that was created, and it was good in God's sight. But when you get to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, the whole tenor of the conversation changes. It changes when God creates man. You'll notice this in verses 26 and 27. There's something different about the way that God made humans. <clears throat> verse 26 says, He made us after our likeness. In verse 27, in our image, showing us that in creating man, God wasn't just revealing his invisible attributes like he does through the trees and the stars. But in creating man, God was doing something unique. He's creating man in his image so that we as humans could reveal what God is like in this world. The trees don't do that. The fish don't do that. But God created man in his image to represent God in the earth, to reveal God. We were created by God to reveal God. Our life, our very breath is from God. It is for God's glory and to reveal God to this world around us. That's why you were created. And we see this throughout human history. I mean, you you can look in the Bible history, but just think about what man has done in human history. What other being or created being in the history of the world has done more good for the world? Lions and tigers and bears, oh my? No, only man. What other created being in the history of the world has formulated governments, written laws, and written books? Only man. What other created being in the history of the world has engineered bridges, constructed high-rises, made advancements in medicine, science, math, and in every realm of education? Only man has done that. Why? Because man was made in the image of God to reveal God's greatness to the world, to represent God. But there's something in verse 26 that's very important that we cannot miss. And we see this throughout the Genesis account, and for the sake of the study on relationships, we're going to narrow our focus down a bit. <clears throat> it's on the plural pronoun, our. God created man and woman in the image of the triune God. It's a plural pronoun that shows us the uniqueness of our character is that we're made in the likeness of the image of the Godhead, revealing there's something unique about the way we are created, that, that, ap, that we're created after the likeness of the relationships that we find in the Godhead. So let's look at our second point, which is the unity of the Godhead. Because we've got to consider, what do these relationships look like? And, and by the Godhead, we mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are three persons that make up the unified Godhead. Now understand, as the created being, we are indeed very limited, right? This, what we're about to do here is a little bit like the Mona Lisa trying to describe Leonardo da Vinci. It's like walking into a house, and the house then begins to tell you all the things about the builder. We're very limited. And we're limited to only what God's Word has to say to us about this issue. Because God's word does reveal to us some things in his word about how the triune God relates inside the Godhead. Namely, we know that the Godhead, they are in complete unity and in complete harmony. 
And we know that this unity, in this unity, they have different roles and different functions. As an example of that, let's think of the work of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. But notice verse 2. The Spirit of God was also present, hovering over the waters of the sea. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we're told that creation was created by the Son, for the Son, and through the Son. He was the vehicle. Every member of the Godhead was and is at work in making all that was made. Each member of the Trinity has a different job in accomplishing the grand plan of the Godhead, but they are one. They are completely and perfectly in harmony and in unity with one another. Another example of this would be in the work of redemption. God the Father planned redemption, the Son goes accomplishes redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption. They're all three at work accomplishing the grand plan of God. The other thing we know from God's word is that there's an authority structure in the Godhead. It's interesting, when Jesus comes to earth, he reveals more of this to us by saying things like, he was there to do the Father's bidding. He was there to obey the Father's will. Meaning there's God the Father who gave a will, there's God the Son who executes that will, and there's a spirit that does exactly what God the Father and God the Son want done. Now you notice, inside this relationship of the Godhead, there's no jealousy, there's no power struggle, there's no politicking, there's no selfish ambition, but instead, there's perfect and complete unity of mind and will and purpose. And this unity is found and given to us for a couple reasons. We know this from the Bible. We have this unity in the Godhead for the glory of God to be displayed and for the good of all of God's people. You can't help but read the Bible and not see it as God pursuing his people over and over and over and over again. We covered that in our Advent series, did we not? How this God is after us and pursuing us and he does all things according to the kind intention of his will for the, <clears throat> for the glory of his great name and the good of his people in every part of the world and every part of human history. And they do this while dwelling together in perfect unity and perfect love for each other. But notice, they are three, yet one. They're different, yet unified. They're different, yet together. They're diverse, yet unified and in perfect harmony. Now, understanding that about God, the Godhead, it gives you a glimpse into what it means to be made in the image of God. It means we were created to relate and live together in harmony and in unity, listen, like the three members of the Trinity live together in harmony and unity. It means that we were not only made for God, for God's glory, but we were made to relate to one another like the Godhead relates to one another in the inner workings of the Trinity. Let me give you an example of that. It's happening right here in our room. It's found in verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. When it says that God made them male and female, he created them. You could not get two more distinctly different created beings than a man and a woman. You can say amen to that. It's okay. Amen to that. Yeah, that's right. And I have dudes that tell me, listen, man, the re- we just think differently. And here's the difference. I'm logical and she's not. Well, okay, then I listen to his logic and realize that's not very logical so we cannot think more differently you cannot be more different 
Yet, think about this. If God had created Adam and left him in isolation, Adam could not represent the our image relational aspect of the Creator. If God made Adam and just another dude, they would not be different. They would not be diverse. And in that diversity with man and woman, God is revealing something about his remarkable display of how we're created in his image. This is why God said in Genesis 18 that he made Eve as a helper for Adam because he had not made a helper suitable for him. This text is normally made for husbands and wives, but let's take it a bit further. This text is also about God creating different created humans to display in their diversity the unity found in the Godhead. In other words, God made us to be together in relational unity. Now what's fascinating is, we know what happens, and we're going to study this next week, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 about sin entering the world and bringing relational division. But after Christ comes, notice with me in John chapter 17, as Jesus is on his way to go die for his people, notice what burdens Jesus' heart when he prays for us in his high priestly prayer. He says, Lord, I, I do not ask for these only, the 12 disciples with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who those people are? That's us. We're the ones who have believed the gospel because of the word of the apostles. And then he says that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, meaning if we're in God the Father and God the Son, we are experiencing a unity and can experience a unity to be one together. Why? So that the world may know that you have sent me. But then he goes on. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. These are remarkable words of Jesus. We see that Jesus prayed for those who trusted in him as their savior. That's us. And his prayer is that we would be one as he and the father are one. Why? So that the world, the divided world would know that Jesus was sent by the father. Now we'll look at this text more clearly in our last sermon of this series. But for right now, I want you to notice what burdened Jesus. What did he bring to the altar to pray for? He was burdened that we might live in unity, the unity of the Godhead, by living together in harmony and in love so that the reality of Christ would be revealed to the world around us. And listen, you, you might say, listen, that, that's impossible. Well, here's the point. If Jesus prayed this prayer, it means by God's grace, which we'll learn, he's given us the power and the plan of how this can potentially be lived out even imperfectly in a Genesis 3 world. So we were created for God, for his glory, for the revealing of God. And one of the ways that this happens is by us dwelling together in unity and in harmony and in love for one another. See, that's why there's so much frustration when people can't get along. It's why there's, there's concern when there's fighting. Because we, we were not made for this. We were made 
for unity. That means the desire that you have to be intimately known, that people would know you, they would know all the ins and outs about you, they'd know all your foibles, all your sins, all your issues, and love you anyway. That the desire to be really loved and really known, to live in a unified, caring community, guess what? That's God-given. It's God-given. Because you were made to be known richly and thoroughly. You were made to be, to be loved deeply. <clears throat> and you were made to be in harmony with other people. It's why you feel the frustration and concern over division and conflict. We were made for unity and harmony with one another despite our differences. Relationships before the fall were made to look something like the unity found in the Godhead. That's the design of God. We were made to live in harmony and unity and love for each other. And when it happens, listen, it glorifies God and it greatly benefits his people. Now let's take this home with us. Now you see how narrow I'm being. I'm being very narrow. Relationships before the fall. Next week, relationships after the fall. Following that, how do we... How do we reconcile the problems? But right now, relationships before the fall. Let's take a few things home with us. See, you notice how God-centered this view is. It starts with God, and it's got to end with God. See, these to make these relations, to understand true human flourishing, we cannot start with man and man's needs or expectations. We must start with God, and we must end with God. After all, if you know the story of the Bible, that's what happens. The Bible begins with the community of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, creating a community of people in the Garden of Eden. What, what, is, what do you see the last book happening? The community of people worshiping the community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in heaven. It begins with God and it ends with God. We could say it this way. We were made in the image of God to live in unity and love because this reveals the unity of the Godhead and the love in the Godhead to the world. I mean, have you thought of yourself as being a representative revealing to the world the love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to the world? That's way bigger than... God love me. See how God's glory is at stake, see? This is what relationships were like before the fall. There was no sin, no self-focus, no false pretenses. Imagine going to coffee with somebody, and as you sit down with them, you don't have to wonder, I wonder what their motive is. The amount of people that I ask to have a meeting for that then reply back to, can you ask Dave what the top of a conversation is? As if I have a sinister thought in my mind. I don't. I would tell you if I'm going to have a sinister thought. It's coming out. right? You're going to see it. right? We're all assuming something. Imagine going to a cup of coffee with somebody before the fall and there's none of that. Imagine going to a business deal and there's no backdoor deals that have been made behind you that you don't know about that are going to be tricked by. It's all out in the open. There was love and unity and joy with one another, with God at the center. Man lived in a God-centric way in relationships. <clears throat> so redemptive relationships, we must begin with God. The second thing that means is relationships then are primarily 
for the glory of God, and I'm going to have you add a little part to this in your notes, not our personal needs. Relationships are primarily for the glory of God, not our personal needs. See, the challenge with the pursuit of God-centered relationships is that our needs, our expectations, our wants being met cannot be the primary goal. We see this everywhere in our society. You see it in small decisions, right? I mean, your kid goes to school, they don't fit in, Johnny comes home with a bad story about something that happened, and we immediately say to ourselves, I've got to move schools. You move into a new neighborhood, and you got a, you know, you got the neighbor from hell, and you're like, oh my word, we got to move neighborhoods. You go to work, and you have a bad day at work, and you want to change jobs because you had a bad day at work. All of our personal needs are always on the forefront. We do this with churches. I don't, I didn't like it here. This happened here. We're moving all the time, but not for biblical reasons. We're just moving because personal needs aren't being met. But we do it with huge decisions. If you feel like we've fallen out of love in our marriage or we don't feel like our marriage is good for us anymore, we pursue separation and divorce. If the gender God gave us isn't what we like, isn't meeting our needs, we want to change. If the moral standards of God are too restrictive, For us, we'll do whatever we want because our needs, our wants, our desires are what matters the most. Naturally, our our tendency is to start with us rather than what brings God the greatest glory. See, in a biblical understanding of relationships and how interpersonal stuff works, our needs or expectations are not the goal. The goal is God's glory being revealed to the world around us because when God's glory is is pursued and revealed through our lives, here's something that crazy happens. Our needs, our expectations, our wants are not only met, they're generally exceeded. See, if getting our needs met is the goal, the problem is there, there is no human on earth. No fraternity, no sorority, no social club, and no church that can ever meet all of our needs. It's impossible for another human or another human institution to do that. It's impossible. If you're going into marriage to have your needs met, don't go into marriage yet. We got to talk. Right? If getting our expectations met is the goal... There is no objective standard to our expectations. And our our desires, our expectations, our dreams, they all change depending on the season of life. I can't believe how much things have changed in my life in 10 months, much less 10 years or 20 years. This is why the goal must be God-centered because the only, the infinite triune God can fulfill all of your longings. He's the only one that can fulfill all of your hopes. He's the only one that can meet you at your dreams and readjust things to make you more satisfied. And he's the only one who never changes. See, while your expectations are changing all the time, God never does. When we see the glory of God is at stake in this, we will, we will seek to make our relationships get in line with His will, even in the most difficult, harsh, and painful environments. Yeah, it's a big goal, but there's big power in the power of Christ. If our needs are the goal, we will not, and we, and we don't get what we want, listen, we're not going to keep pushing because we're out. 
I've heard more people through the last year just basically say things like, I'm done dealing with it. My response just is, is Christ ever done dealing with you? But if the glory of God is what we're committed to, then here's what we'll do. We'll work hard at reconciliation and unity. We'll work hard at it. That's why the glory of God must be the goal. Friends, God is uniquely glorified when we forgive when we've been sinned against. He's glorified when we love after we've been hurt. He's glorified when we continue to make ourselves vulnerable even when we've been given every reason not to be vulnerable. And the reason it glorifies God is because it uniquely reveals the glory of God in the life of Jesus. Jesus came to us, his enemies, loved us and gave himself up for us. He became poor so that we might become rich. He made himself of no reputation so that we might have a reputation before God. He was forsaken so that you and I might be accepted. And he just continued to come and come time and time again. See, giving ourselves to relationships and living together in harmony, even if it's imperfect and inconvenient, reveals the glory of God. So the glory of God must be our primary objective in relationships. Now, the last take-home point, and it's one we've got to be really careful with, <clears throat> is that perfect or sin-free relationships will not happen here. See, because we live in a Genesis 3 world stained with sin, we won't have perfect relationships here. It just won't happen. I, listen, I have a wonderful marriage. I know many of you have wonderful marriages. I, I, I can't imagine a more wonderful marriage than mine, yet it's imperfect. We're both sinners. We're filled with, we're stained with sin. And the power of sin, the presence of sin still remains, even though the power of sin has been defeated. It's, it's imperfect still. Perfect unity in the church will, will not happen here. We, we have wonderful unity here, but it's imperfect. It's imperfect. As I said earlier, one of us can walk in the door and just disrupt that in a moment's notice. Yeah, we'll get a foretaste of unity. We'll get a silhouette of it. But we'll never attain to perfect unity here. Every moment that we experience of true community is just like a breadcrumb that reminds us there's something else to come. Are you aware, right, that your Sunday morning event is just simply a moment for you to dabble a little bit in what heaven's like? But are you also aware, though, that conflict is a reminder that this world is not your home? Are you also aware that the difference in the separation that goes on in relationships is a reminder this world isn't you? That's why you ache so bad to be reconciled. There will be a day when all of our sin will be done away, when, when the imperfect will put on the perfect, when the mortal <clears throat> will put on immortality, and then that day perfect community will be experienced. But now it's not that day. See, this is why so many get disillusioned by the pursuit of unity in the church. Because we want something that only heaven can really provide. See, they'll always be imperfect. We'll, we'll get there. We can do a few things. We can try to reconcile some stuff for the glory of God and do it as best we can and come to the conclusion, I think we're all done here, but there's going to be another sin that takes place. There's going to be another moment of hurt. Be another moment of pain. Why? This world's not our home. 
And we leave in every conversation, leave every relationship with this little bit of empty feeling like there's something a little bit more. I'd like to go deeper in that conversation. Well, friends, one day that longing will be no more. That, that's, that's why we need the power of Christ now. So in, in redemptive relationships, here's something that is fascinating. We are bringing a glimpse of heaven to the earth to show the world that Jesus' power is so powerful that it keeps us together regardless of where we stand on the pandemic or where we stand on our politics, but where we stand on Christ. That, that's what we're revealing. So what we have to be really careful is we say, well, perfect, perfect community cannot happen here, therefore why try? Well, we try because on this Genesis 3 world, our unity, our community is revealing something to the world about the power of God at work in God's people. It's revealing something of heaven. I'm convinced, I think our elders are convinced, that one of the ways that the church is going to infiltrate and influence our community and influence this world is not through just simply having better conferences, talking more. I think it's going to come through us loving better. It's going to come through us treating each other with greater respect in our differences because the world has no category for this. They have no idea how you could talk from two different spectrums and yet walk out as friends at the end of the day because Jesus matters to you more than your positions. You want an inroad for the gospel? Jesus said it very clearly. They will know you by your love for one another. We were made to be in unity with one another. And the power of Christ goes to work to restore to us our true humanity. So we can be unified together in the power of Christ, although imperfectly here, to reveal something to this world about the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Now as you have your head bowed and you're praying here, I want to just give you a couple thoughts that I want you to evaluate. We're heading to communion right now, and I'm sure that as we've talked about relationships, that maybe for some of you, you are aware that there is a relationship that you have failed to pursue to try to be reconciled with. And Jesus would tell us in Matthew 5 that before we come to the table to bring our gift or take our gift, we should attempt to be reconciled with that person. So maybe wherever you're at, that person isn't here. Maybe they are. If they are here, I'd encourage you, go to them now and ask them to forgive you. Try to make it reconciled. Do what you need to do. Or if they're not here or that opportunity doesn't exist, then take a moment to commit yourself before the Lord to do that very thing. There's also those of us that have attempted to be at peace with people, yet they've continued to hold us at arm's length. And I know, I know some of you are in that category. And I want to pray for you this morning that God would restore and reconcile that relationship, or if he chooses not to right now, that you would be at rest in doing all that you could. And then I want to pray for us, CLF. We, we have enjoyed this season and I want to pray that we would continue 
to be faithful, to do the little things well, like being reconciled to one another, like confessing and confronting sin if necessary, to giving and receiving encouragement. And that God would protect us from division and disunity. So Father, we we need you today. You know the needs of every individual in the room. You know you know the challenges they're facing even with regard to relationships right now. It may be a dad who <clears throat> was harsh with his kids on the way into church and he knows now he needs to reconcile that with his children. It may be a friendship that over the holiday season we got offended and we cut them off and we've been angry at them and we need to go talk with them. I pray for people right now that know of a relationship that they need to reconcile and they haven't made the attempt. I pray, Father, that you would help them. Help them be at peace with these people. And I pray for those of us in the room, Father, that that have reached out to be at peace and yet it's been rejected. I pray, Father, that you would stir hearts to bring restoration to relationships. And if in this moment, Lord, in this time that that doesn't happen, I pray that you'd help the people who have reached out to be at peace, let them be at rest in you that they've done all they can. And that you are, you've never stopped working. And the Father, would you, would you protect what we have? We Help us to be faithful to you in this regard, to be, <clears throat> to be committed to relationships for the glory of God and be committed to doing and submitting ourselves to the power of Christ and the plan of Christ and entrusting the results to you. Father, unity is a gift from you. Harmony is a gift from you. And we, we want to maintain that unity. We want to fight to maintain it. We want to protect it with everything we have because you've given it to us as a gift. Help us to be faithful and protect us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.